Hello and welcome to our special end of year podcast for 2021. Today I'll be sharing my favourite clips from our podcast this year. It has been another challenging year as organisations have been in the thick of trying to deal with the fallout and ongoing new challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. At TAPT, we've been supporting our partners and customers through this, and we've been sharing our latest thinking through hosting events and publishing reports on dispersed team leadership and inclusive organisations. My first clip is actually with the co-author of our Inclusive Organisations report, Joe Drury. Joe has extensive experience in the inclusion field, and here I asked Joe about the practical side of inclusion in organisations and what organisations can do to act on and to raise inclusion in their cultures for their people. Our report uh, goes into some depth actually looking at the issues and challenges that inclusion inside of organization faces from the myths that are around to microaggressions and all these areas. But I want to concentrate today really about what organizations can do uh, and, and to actually build inclusion in their organization. So, so what do you think those, those key issues are that organizations are facing around inclusion at the moment? I think some of the trends that I'm seeing where organizations have a, a good drive to do the right thing um, and can understand the commercial benefits of doing so, um, but they don't necessarily have the insight or the structured guidance that, that would come with you know, really doing it well. So I'll give you I'll give you a few examples. The first one I think is when um, either decision makers or innovators in different organizations come up with um, activities that they want to achieve or events that they want to hold, for example, because they've seen something like that done in other organizations, whether that's in their industry or, or another industry. But what they often don't see or make enough accommodation for is what the organization who's doing that has done before and what they're planning to do after and how it fits in the broader context, which often then leads to these things being done in isolation, um, then not being enough depth to what's going on behind it. Um, and it, it can feel quite faddy. Um, the second thing I see, which links in with that, is where you know, many organizations have increasingly needed to operate at pace and the culture has had to catch up with that. Um, and, and that in itself presents a lot of work to do with, with organizational development. One of the, the real key points I see around inclusion is that there is a lack of insufficient, um, sorry, there's a lack of sufficient or a lack of reliable or a lack of really relevant data that supports what people are doing around inclusion. Um, and it's almost like a it's sort of trying to hotwire or take a shortcut. Um, and that means that it's based on assumptions body of data so it's about the investment in that before you then go on to do the sort of exciting nice to have activities as well i would say um i don't think some organizations invest um enough time or resources in building frameworks and mechanisms um, that are going to support the longer term success of what they're doing which leads to things feeling quite disjointed uh, and transactional 
um, rather than focusing first on designing um, and investing in a, a vehicle that's going to help you carry it forward and create sustainability. And then I think that the piece that a lot of people already think about um, is how we develop, educate um, and create awareness and communication campaigns. In this area, one of the things that I see, particularly around the education piece or awareness piece, is a lot of mandatory sheep dip off the training, uh, off the training, off the shelf training um, in, in an effort to either uh, ensure compliance or to reach a certain standard that is expected of them by their, their stakeholders. Um, but doing it in this way without necessarily, again, having it part of the bigger picture and thinking about um, it is not always effective and actually in some instances can be quite dangerous to the cause. Um, again, we talk about that in, in the report with some, some research behind it. But I guess uh, in summary for that point, one size doesn't necessarily fit all, whether it's stakeholders or purposes that, that all refers to. An interesting point Joe says there about one size doesn't fit all when it comes to inclusion activities. In this next clip, on another podcast around resistance to inclusion within organisations, I asked Joe how organisations can lead the way in inclusive cultures when our wider society seems to be struggling in this area so much. That's quite interesting in itself when talking about resistance, because actually, as an organisation, we have very explicit rules about behaviour inside the yeah. organisation, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, probably more explicit than actual general society at the moment, because there's a whole argument at the moment in the UK, especially about freedom of speech and what can be said and can't be said. But actually, in organisations, I think we have much more tighter, socially acceptable rules so actually we can lead the way in organizations yes. about what yeah. is resist what you can say can't say yeah and even in that you know as, as someone who you know and obviously it's a, it's a big area that, that you have a lot of expertise in Anthony is, is culture change um, and you know organizational behaviors and values and it's some it's the mainstay of my um, working history is in leadership development and culture development and with values you know often I'll say are they that's great but are they lived or are they laminated and put upon a wall and nobody you know people struggle to even recall what they are um and so part of that it's not about I think we need to be careful what we're prescribing to people what we're making a mandatory test what we're doing a sheet dip and actually what we need to spend more time doing is um even if you've got to take some of the money away from uh doing a really attractive piece of branding around your values Take the time to let people experiment with what those values mean to them individually so that they're not just prescribed. It doesn't feel like you're just doing as you're told, but actually you can understand how it fits into your world. Yeah, and if you're if, and one of the most common values, isn't it, is integrity or there's something around how we interact with our colleagues. Yeah. And actually, if we're going to overcome resistance to inclusion, then actually allowing people to fully immerse themselves into that value and actually live it is yeah. actually going to be a great it, weapon, really, isn't it, it? It's it's huge. And it's another one that you'll often see is passion, for example. And I've said to people previously, am I passionate? And they'll say yes. And I'll say, how do you know? And they'll say, because I do my sometimes metaphorical, sometimes not jazz hands. And I'm quite a, an, an extroverted, uh, animated person. Um, if you then look at somebody like, for example, David Attenborough, is he passionate? Yes, he absolutely is. Does he do the jazz hands, the loud voice, etc., and the, the, the cartwheels? No, he doesn't, because that turtle would run a mile. So 
it's about understanding that those values can be flexible and their parameters of what is and isn't acceptable, but allowing people to experiment with what this means to them rather than forcing it on them um, is really important. I love the metaphor Joe uses there. Are your values lived or laminated? I think that summarizes so well why change and transformation doesn't often land as well as we expect. With so much change happening within organizations this year, one of our key focus areas with our customers at TAPT has been around change success, transformational leadership, and storytelling. My third clip is with two people who are immersed in change at the Ministry of Justice, Elaine Mahon and Karen Nataro. In this clip from our podcast on productivity through our people, I asked Karen and Elaine on how productivity could be possibly measured in a non-revenue and complex organisation. Because when I do think of things like the Ministry of Justice, I'm thinking about um, no revenue, no profits and, and that kind of thing. And so, and productivity usually gets associated with, with very much more transactional things. So, so that thought about optimizing is, is a great aspect. So, um, so but there's a lot out there on productivity. So, so where did you decide to start? So as you say, and so yeah, there's a lot of research out there and productivity is relatively hard to actually define. You know, traditionally, it's all about inputs versus outputs. Uh, but most work is not all about that now. You know, it's less about the process and more about the outcomes. So did lots of work looking at articles, uh, the CIPD website, and then came across the TAP Solutions Productivity White Paper. So, you know, reading and reflecting on the fact that it is written from the perspective of people, um, particularly people productivity, and the six key focus areas seem to be the closest to kind of answering our question of what would a chief people officer have to say about productivity? And that's interesting. And and I might mention uh, about uh, what's inside the, the tapped white paper in, in a moment. But I, I want to ask you a question, Karen, and you don't know this one's coming. So, um, but uh, when you were looking into productivity, how much did you find was out there? Uh, did you find that there was loads of stuff around the productivity that doesn't include results? Or did you find it was quite sparse? Uh, it, most of it was relating to inputs versus outputs. So a lot of the, the CIPD information, for example, was all about, you know, the kind of traditional in industry standards way of measuring productivity. Um, some other things were relating to different sectors as well. So there was quite a lot of stuff looking at sort of public sector, uh, but public sector more relating to um, healthcare workers or, or social workers. So it, it was really quite a niche um, area, really. And, and I think that, uh, the reason, oh, sorry, go for it, Elaine. I was just, yeah, I was just, go, just going to add to that as well. So the, it, is a, it is a niche area and it is inputs, outputs. But I do think that more and more, some organisations are saying that there's at least a need to look at it differently. Maybe their concepts, the theories, the, the indicators or the measurements are not out there yet. But certainly a lot of organisations, um, a lot of the big consultancies as well, are, are stating that, you know, leadership and management practices uh, are key to unlocking the productivity puzzle, the individual impact, you know, well-being, engagement, interaction with the workplace environment are all factors that are more and more important to, to look at. So there are, I think the rhetoric is starting to show that actually these transformational ways of understanding productivity um, are really key. An interesting view that leadership practices and individual well-being are key to productivity within our organisations. 
Maybe we too easily try to focus on financial results when looking at productivity in revenue generating organisations. In my fourth clip, I'm talking to Dr. Aaron O'Connor, an anthropologist at University College London, who has completed a study on the challenges of working remotely as we went through the initial lockdown waves of the pandemic. Here, as we are closing the podcast, I ask Aaron what organisations should be thinking about around their people working remotely. Aaron gives a great summary of her research. So what would you suggest organisations consider for work in the workplace based on this study that you've done? Because obviously there is so much there and we've only got time to tickle the surface kind of thing. But, mm-hmm. but, but what, what do you think there is there, there for organisations to think about? Well, I, I, I do think that we have to pay attention to uh, the ways in which work from home um, has changed sort of the nature of work, but to understand the way work itself has changed, as I said before, we do have to understand the working relationships that basically create that work. And so sort of the three things that in our study with this specific group of people we we did the research with, um, it was clear that working from home um, is generating a more intense form of of um, outputs driven work. And we need to really, I really believe we need to pay attention to the consequences of that. What is it that is is being missed? What are the immeasurable forms of performance and value um, that that cannot be, that need a lot more support when we're working from home? Um, Also people have uh, learnt perhaps unexpectedly in some circumstances to work more independently than they used to, even on work that was usually considered to be collaborative work. And for some people that has had fantastic, um, that has led to fantastic things like having a lot more time to themselves, a lot more quiet time. Um, But it's very important to pay attention to moments, types of work, which could technically be done solo but really would benefit enormously far more from from collaborative work. And we need to look at those and how to kind of safeguard those. Um, And maybe, you know, um, the final one is is sort of how information is shared um, and what information is no longer being shared between colleagues because it's become this very need to know way of communicating and, and spending time with one another. And what is it we're losing when we're not sharing as much kind of anecdotes, information, stories, yeah. These challenges around task-focused working, the challenge around collaboration versus individual time, and our needs as humans to still have space for our social gossip needs are going to continue to be key challenges for people, professionals and leaders as we go into 2022. My final clip is continuing the theme of satisfying the needs of our people as a way to create healthy work environments. Here, I'm talking with Marie Checker, an experienced organization wellbeing consultant about how wellbeing drives success. In this clip, Marie has just given a great explanation of wellbeing in organizations. We now focus in on how we can build wellbeing through motivation and engagement. And I think that there's, there's so many factors here, aren't there? Because well-being in some ways has emerged from the world of health and safety um, to, into mm. the 21st century. 
into okay well-being is to support our people being in the right mental and physical space but it's almost like a push and pull thing isn't it because actually we should actually be that thing you're saying about purpose and motivation mm-hmm. that, that almost borders on engagement doesn't it and inclusion oh, totally. yeah. so it's, it's almost yeah. like some of the most modern things we're talking about have to include well-being right at the core yeah yeah 100 percent. i think all, all of those things i mean well-being should just be part of everything that you do in an organization now and and be thought of as um part of your strategy um your vision and engagement 100 percent. you know engaged employees are happy employees that you know and i i, I don't actually like using the term happy that much when I'm talking about well-being at work because we don't come to work specifically to be happy and happy is one of many emotions and you can be happy at work you need to be happy to see your employee your um colleagues and that's great that's all part of well-being that social interaction um but um a happy workplace to me feels like the wrong thing to be focusing on it's you know our when I think about um what people need from the workplace it's it's things like um autonomy you know that's a huge a huge factor in um in well-being do they have um the competence the ability the skills to do the work that they're being asked to do you know are they being given um training to to learn the skills you know and if, you don't, if you're not feeling competent in your role, you're not going to be feeling happy and healthy and your mental well-being will suffer because, you know, you'll, you'll be feeling stressed and under pressure. So um, those, those two things are hugely important in, you know, your well-being at work. There's um, relatedness. You know, how do you how do you relate to what you're doing? How do you relate to the people around you? Um, do you feel a sense of belonging? to where you're working you know um and beneficent as well is another one that is important and these these are all things that have come from a cross-cultural study um looking at what um what meaningful work means and if people have meaningful work they're going to be they're going to be feeling a sense of purpose they're going to that's you know which is hugely important as um you know well-being at work and So, and beneficence, sorry, it's, you know, it's it's around acts of kindness. And I think probably a lot of people have heard how being kind, how doing things for others is a huge impact on your own personal well-being. Um, so for me, that's in the workplace thinking, well, how, how am I being treated? How am I treating others? Because that's going to, you know, hugely impact the workplace well-being for yourself and the people around you. Um, so for me, those those are the those are the real cruxes I think of workplace well-being, um, in terms of what an organisation can be impacting, and um, you know, organisations, leaders, teams, you know, how do they work together um, and bring all this together? You know, that's that's for me. That's the employee experience and using things like engagement surveys and people surveys to find out from employees, you know, how, how are they actually being able to bring these things to life? Are they 
are they experiencing these things in a positive way or you know those things surveys can be an amazing place amazing way sorry tool to bring evidence and data to what you're trying to do um particularly in a well-being um when you're looking at well-being and you're looking for you know that return on investment or evidence to back up your business case of what you're trying to do and where the business is struggling what, need, what you need to be working on what you need to be prioritizing um yeah those those are really good things that you can sort of focus on as we head into 2022, still far from the end of disruption from pandemic waves, our key challenge will continue to be about how we help our people deal with this flux in the world around us, be that hybrid and remote working, or the anxiety of those who have to travel to their workplace every day. As Marie suggests, concentrating on motivating and engaging our people through their team leaders will be critical as we realise that individual responses to the last couple of years need an employee-centric response from us as people professionals. Well, that's it for another year of Tap Talks HR Podcasts. We'll be back in the new year with an excellent podcast on job crafting. We also have our next research publication on hybrid working and engagement in the pipeline. I wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I hope you all have time to get some rest with your families. Thanks, as always, for listening.